0: This evening in your Bibles, if you would turn to Isaiah 53, that'll be our scripture reading. Uh, You can find that on page 847 in your pew Bible. After we read from the Word of God, we'll then turn our attention to the Belgic Confession, Article 20, and in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 173. So we read first from the Word of God, Isaiah 53, then from what we receive as a faithful summary of the Word of God, the Belgic Confession, Article 20, as we continue to consider the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and also then his work. So here now the reading of the word of God from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Article 20 of the Belgian Confession is entitled, The Justice and Mercy of God in Christ, and it states that we believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and also very just, sent his Son to assume the nature in which the disobedience had been committed, in order to bear in it the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. So God made known his justice toward his Son, who is charged with our sin, and he poured out his goodness and mercy on us who are guilty and worthy of damnation, giving to us his Son to die by a most perfect love and raising him to life for our justification in order that by him we might have immortality and eternal life. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Some of you know this, a a bit of an anecdotal story, a a bit of a personal anecdotal story. Some of you know uh, by the way of testimony uh, that I have a dangerous habit when I drive, Uh, and the dangerous habit uh, was revealed last evening also as we conversed with some persons of the congregation. My dangerous habit is this, that I'm easily distracted uh, when I drive, especially in uh, the rural countryside and especially uh, in planting time and in harvest time, easily distracted uh, by farm equipment in the field. Now, I just simply bring up that Personal anecdotal story to remind ourselves of how easy it is to be distracted. Now, maybe you're not distracted by the same things that I'm distracted, and maybe you're not distracted when you drive, but all of us will, at some level, appreciate how easy it is to become distracted. And I bring this up because I do believe there's also a danger for the Christian to become distracted and the Christian church to become distracted. Distracted perhaps by an overemphasis upon political activity, or perhaps distracted by an overemphasis upon traditionalism, perhaps being distracted by a moralistic tendency, so that the church's message becomes a long list of do's and don'ts. Well, you know the best thing to avoid distraction is to remain focused. If you're driving, and if there's rural uh, landscape, and if there's farm machinery, the best thing to do is to tell yourself, I will look straight ahead. I will not look to the right, nor to the left. I will not look at uh, the farm equipment. I will not look upon uh, the the farms as we pass by them. I will not try to see how many tractors are hidden behind the grain bin. I, I will look at the road. And so also for the Christian. I will not look to the right, I will not look to the left, but I will keep my eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ. And so also for the Christian congregation, we will not look to the right nor to the left, but we will fix our eyes upon the author and the finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. So consider this evening a humble attempt using the Word of God as it is before us uh, to remind ourselves of the importance of being focused upon the person And the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life and in our death and indeed for all of eternity. Because Jesus said in John 12 verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And so we want to consider the subject matter before us this evening with the theme of our belief concerning the satisfaction of Christ. And as we consider that theme, we'll do it first of all by noticing the need for the satisfaction And then secondly, the work in the satisfaction. And then third, the transaction from the satisfaction. So the satisfaction of Christ referring to His redemptive work, especially that redemptive work that He accomplished through His sufferings, His death, and His descent into hell. But then of course also leading to His uh, resurrection from the dead and His ascension into heaven and His being seated at the right hand. Uh, we, We make different distinctions within the redemptive work of Christ, the states of humiliation and the states of exaltation, but the work of Christ is one in the accomplishment of our redemption. And in the accomplishment of our redemption or our salvation, Christ made satisfaction. And he had to do that. There was a pressing need for Jesus Christ to make satisfaction for us in regards to divine justice and divine mercy. And here again, lest we become guilty of undue repetition, we just note in passing how vital it is for us to have a robust theology, a a, a biblical knowledge of who God is. And may we as a church and may we as a people and and whoever hears these words, may may we rededicate ourselves that that we will be diligent students of God And, and that our prayer and our desire would be Lord God, show us who you are, and teach us who you are. Because where will a focus upon man get us? If we focus upon man, ultimately it is the most futile exercise, uh, and it's concerning to see churches focusing so much upon man, and upon man's felt needs, and upon man's whims and fancies. In many ways you might say that, that such a focus is similar to a diet, made up entirely of some type of junk food. You know, it may satisfy for a mere moment, but then at the end of the day, as you ingest all of this junk food, first of all, it leaves you feeling rotten. And secondly, it's completely unsatisfying and it's very unhealthy. And a studied diet from a pulpit within a church of anthropocentric preaching will do the same thing to a congregation. So we instead need to focus uh, upon God, upon who He is. And when we look upon Scripture and when we ask, who is this God? We'll notice that there is a revelation uh, of a simple God. What do we mean by the simplicity of God, theologically speaking? God is not made up of composite parts. Now we of course understand, as we've looked at in recent weeks, that we believe in the existence of a triune God, one divine nature, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential. But we, boys and girls, when we think of our body, we're made up of parts. Well, we, have a, we have a hand, we well, have two hands, we have two arms, we have two legs. And hopefully we, we keep all of our parts, all of our life, but, but sometimes because of a necessary surgery or maybe because of an accident, someone might lose a finger or, or lose a hand. But you can keep on living even without a finger, even without a hand. You know, maybe you'll have an appendectomy, and the doctor will go in, and he'll remove your appendix because it becomes swollen. Well, you can continue to live because we're made up of parts. But God is not made up of parts. And so his attributes cannot be taken apart. You cannot have a buffet idea of God and say, well, I'm all about a God who is mercy and love, but I don't really want anything of a God who is just. Because to understand who Jesus Christ is and understand what Jesus Christ has done, and in order to understand the way in which we must be reconciled with our God, we must first and foremost understand that this simple God is a God of divine justice. Now, now what is divine justice? It's linked to God's attribute of righteousness and linked to His attribute of holiness. A God is infinitely separate from all evil within Himself. Uh, there is no evil. There is no sin within God. He's infinitely holy. Uh, and you might say it this way, that He has a holy recoil uh, against sin and against evil. And, and God is a just God in that He righteously establishes the moral commands that apply to His rational creatures. And, and so when you think of God revealing to Moses with the, the stone tablets, those Ten Commandments, It's not as if the moral commands of God begin in Exodus 20. Uh, God's moral commands flow out of God's very holy nature. It's just simply the revelation in a very tangible form that is given to Moses. But but think of it. In that record, as you can find it as we read it every Sunday morning in Exodus chapter 20, did, did God call for some type of human counsel? Did he, did he call the nations together? Did he say, send me all of your leaders, send me all of your, your justices, send me all of your uh, experts in the law and let us have this consultation together and let us come up with some moral code? Not at all. God simply said, you shall have no other gods before me. Because God has what theologians call rectoral justice, God is able to establish the commands that he wishes to establish because he is God. Full stop. God is God and therefore in his justice he is able, he has the authority, he has the power to establish his moral code. And that moral code applies to every single human being. Who has ever come into existence and whoever will come into existence? so that moral code, those commandments, apply to you and to me. Not only does God have this rectoral justice, but he also has what theologians call a remunerative justice, and that God has the authority, He has the prerogative, He has the right to reward those who would keep His commandments. And now this is seen by implication in the covenant that is established with Adam. We say by implication because very clearly the threat, which would uh, tie in more with the retributive justice of God, the threat to Adam is, Adam, the day you violate my moral code as that is expressed to you in the probationary command to not eat of this one particular tree, the day you violate my moral code, you shall surely die. Implied is, Adam, mankind, if you keep my commandments, you will live. The remunerative justice, says, if you fulfill all the requirements of God's law, you live. But if you violate one of them, you have violated all of them, as Paul says elsewhere, and the threat then of God's retributive justice is you will certainly die. And that in a nutshell, we might say, is the idea of God's divine justice that given his right as God to establish moral commandments that flow out of his own holy nature, upon all of us is this obligation to perfectly obey God in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions uh, with the reward set before us of eternal life, but also then the punishment set before us of eternal death. And of course, we know if we're honest with ourselves and if we look upon the testimony of Holy Scripture, That we have violated all the commandments of God. So we cannot attain life by ourselves, but rather upon us hangs the sentence of a just condemnation. I certainly understand that that's not a popular teaching in our day, but I simply ask this question as you read Scripture, is that not the testimony of Scripture apart from the work of Christ? We are without hope and without God and without Christ and without salvation. The law comes and it condemns. But thanks be to God, we don't say amen at the 1st subpoint after the first point. We also then quickly speak about divine mercy. Uh, closely connected to, of course, divine's grace, but God is, of course, a God of mercy. What exactly is mercy? Now, boys and girls, this may be overly simplistic, but it works for me and it'll work for you also. If you think of grace, grace is when... God gives us something that we do not deserve. And then you can kind of flip that around. Mercy is when God doesn't give us that which we do deserve. So grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us something that we do deserve. We might say it this way also. Mercy is God's tender compassion. His his soft-heartedness, His kind-heartedness especially His kind-heartedness shown to His people when He considers their desperate plight. Now, God is a God of mercy from all of eternity. Even hypothetically, uh, if humanity did not exist, God would still be a God of mercy, but His mercy manifests itself or it shows itself, especially when it makes the objects of fallen sinners who have been chosen in Christ. And towards the elect, God has infinite mercy. He's moved with compassion to consider the plight that we are sinners and that we are underneath our own sentence of condemnation. And this you see very clearly, and we referenced this text this morning. It comes back this evening, Exodus 34, verse 5 through 7. Uh, where the Lord reveals to Moses his attributes. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You see, that's the action that flows out of mercy. Because God is a God of mercy, He is a God who forgives. So, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So, anyway, so, that's the attributes of God's mercy. But then, the Lord continues, By no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So, there, there is the expression of God's justice. And that presents us with what we're going to call for now the dilemma. God is a God of mercy, forgiving sin, but He's also a God of justice, not forgiving sin. How is the dilemma solved? That brings us to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we chose to sing Psalm 85 where it says that mercy and truth have kissed for these, these things have met in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But congregation, we need to, for, for a moment, wrestle with this. Now, many of us know the answer. We've learned it in catechism class. Maybe we were blessed in uh, our Christian day schooling also to have Bible classes that taught these things. And maybe we heard sermon after sermon. So we know the answer, but just pause for a moment and consider anew the question. How can God be a God of mercy and justice. How can His righteousness be satisfied, and yet He still look with tender compassion upon those who have violated His righteousness? You see, and when the church begins to consider this question anew, then there will be the refocus upon the Lord Jesus Christ, because you see, that question, that is the ultimate question. How can God's mercy and God's righteousness be reconciled, and no emphasis upon humanity's felt needs, can answer that question. I mean, you can fill auditorium after auditorium, and you can bring in gifted speaker after gifted speaker, and you can have all of the lights, bells, and whistles, and you can answer everything that humanity ever wanted to know about itself. Let me ask you, what is the sum total profit of that? When your days come to an end, and you step foot out of time into eternity? Are you prepared to face God? How can God be merciful and just towards us? That's the need for satisfaction. The answer, of course, is Jesus Christ and His work, which we consider in our second point. More specifically, the work in the satisfaction is that the Son that is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the mediator, the one appointed and qualified to bring about reconciliation, Emmanuel, God with us, uh, the Son that we have considered uh, last Sunday evening. And we talked about the two very real natures. So when in the subpoints in the notes you see the Son, uh, you have here in mind, of course, the divine nature, but also in the fullness of time, the union with the human nature. One person, two natures. A very real divine nature, a very real human nature, like on all points, with the exception of sin, the Son was charged with sin by way of a legal transaction. So in the economy of God's salvation, the Son, assuming our very real human nature, because God's justice demands that the nature that has violated His righteousness also must satisfy His righteousness. That's why our mediator cannot be the multitude of angels. That's why our mediator cannot be all of the bulls and the lambs of the fields. Our mediator must be more than a mere man. He must be a mere man, but he must be more than a mere man. I shouldn't say he must be a mere man. He must be a true man, but more than just a true man. He must be God himself. And in the economy of redemption, the Son is charged with our sin. What does that mean? All of the legal responsibility, the legal obligation, was transferred onto the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as the substitute, as the mediator. Uh, There are numerous passages uh, that come to mind. Uh, One of them is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, and there it speaks about the Father in His judicial role made Him, referring to Jesus Christ, made Him who knew no sin, To be sin for us. And that beloved congregation is the essence of a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. The Father made the Son who knew no sin, who had no guilt, He made Him to be sin for us. And then the text continues. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is seen, of course, played out historically uh, with the trial before Pontius Pilate. Numerous times, Pontius Pilate brings forth the declaration that Christ is innocent. Pilate says, I find no fault in the man. And certainly at that point, Pilate spoke truth. It may be one of the only points at which he spoke truth, but there he spoke truth because there was no fault within the man, Jesus Christ. He never once had violated the comoral commands of his father. He had kept them perfectly the entirety of his life. And yet Pilate, having affirmed the perfect innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness says, take him, crucify him. And in that highly but wonderfully symbolic act Uh, The horizontal beam of the cross that had been prepared for the brazen thief and murderer, Barabbas. Instead of that horizontal beam resting upon Barabbas' shoulders and arms, and instead of Barabbas being taken out to the uh, site of the crucifixion and being executed, Jesus Christ was. And, And when you read and when you think about that transaction taking place, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 gives you a commentary of how to interpret that action. And that's why we need the written word, and that's why we need sermons on the written word more than we need drama, more than we need uh, movies, more than we need skits or plays about the crucifixion, because we need God himself to tell us what is happening when Jesus Christ takes this cross beam upon his shoulders that was designed and meant rightfully so for Barabbas, because Barabbas deserved to die, just like you and I deserve to die. What could Barabbas say? He could try. Well, I I didn't do it. Barabbas, we all know you did it. Well, I'm not that big of a criminal. Barabbas, you're the criminal of all criminals. You're public enemy number one. Barabbas, you deserve to be executed. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ takes that upon himself. And he makes the Long walk outside the city of Jerusalem. Knowing full well that he bore at that moment the guilt of the people whom he came to represent. And so Mark 15 verse 15 says, So Pilate delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. So not only is the son charged with sin, but the son is damned. For sin. I want to make clear that I do not use the word damn lightly. It's tragic that the word is used lightly by the world and by Christians at times as a vulgar swear word. But perhaps the use of damn in its vulgarity is why we no longer appreciate the theological truth in this word. Christ was damned. He was damned for us. When Pilate said, crucify him, Christ was damned. And when you read of those hours of darkness that come upon the scene of the cross and when Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I do not know the perfect answer to that question, but part of the answer is because the Father damned the Son. Not because of anything the Son had done, but because Christ bore the sins of His people. And that's what Isaiah 53 makes so powerfully and pointedly. For example, in verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our face from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Why? Verse 4 answers, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5 gives the reason why. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You know, there have been throughout the history of the church various explanations uh, of what took place on the cross. Uh, One of the most common, although an unbiblical explanation, is known as the moral influence theory. Uh, It's very popular also in our own day. There's really nothing new in uh, the life of the church. Old heresies resurrect themselves, by the way, of false teachers. But what the moral influence theory said is that at the cross, the father through the son's death was just simply showing the world how much god loved the world in an attempt to woo the world to return unto the lord god now certainly when you rightly understand what took place at the cross you know that god so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son but the work of the lord jesus christ on the cross is not the work of some desperate attempt to win over your emotions. The work on the cross is a substitutionary sacrifice, healing once and for all definitively with the justice of God out of the mercy of God. And so the Son proclaims it is finished by the shedding of His blood as we read in John 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes it away. He takes it away by definitively dealing with it once and for all in his atoning sacrifice. And so Jesus Christ satisfied the law as he's charged with sin and as he's damned for sin for us and for our salvation. And we want to consider a little bit more deeply in our third point the transaction that takes place from the satisfaction. A, a transaction takes place, a legal, judicial transaction. And here we come to the biblical teaching concerning justification. Now, further articles, as we continue our series of the Belgian Confession, will deal more specifically with justification. But we cannot speak about the satisfaction of the Lord Jesus Christ and not mention this transaction that accomplishes justification. Now, Now, first of all, we want to be very, very simple, hopefully, and clear, especially to the young people who listen here this evening. Justification. We find that word used by the Apostle Paul, especially, but justification is the legal declaration that God makes that a person has no sin and is perfectly righteous. So we go on and we say a couple other things about justification. It's something that happens outside of us. It's not something that happens in our heart. It's something that happens outside of us. And it's a one-time declaration that can never be changed. And in justification, God, on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, not taking into consideration anything that you and I have done, makes this declaration Based upon the satisfaction that Christ has accomplished, this person is fully righteous. And involved in that is what we call the imputation of passive obedience. Now, by the passive obedience, we do not mean that that Christ just passively succumbed to the wrath of God on the cross. But by passive, we mean that He suffered. He suffered the infinite wrath of God. He suffered the full expression of God's retributive justice, He suffered the full expression of God's holiness, vindicating His righteous and moral commandments. And as Jesus Christ, as our covenantal representative, as our mediator, as He suffered, He suffered because all of the sins of His people were transferred into His account. And not only that, we speak as the Reformers spoke, and as the Scriptures teach, we speak about a double imputation That not only is the the sin of the believer transferred onto the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then we also speak about the imputation of active obedience. And so the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his entirety of his life, especially during his public ministry, he kept every single commandment of God perfectly. He did not do that because he had to obtain some favor with God. He's, He's fully God. But he did that as a mediator, as a surety as a guarantee, and all that He has done in the keeping of that law is then transferred or imputed into the legal account of the Christian. So that, and this is wonderfully stated uh, by one of our forms for the administration of the Lord's Supper, I don't quote it verbatim, but so that God then looks upon the Christian as if I never have sinned. And, and this just magnifies the glory of the gospel, and as if I had kept every single one of the commandments of God. That, my friend, is the amazing gospel. God looks upon me as if I had never sinned, and as if I had kept every one of the commandments of God. Even though I have sinned. and Even though I have never kept one of the commandments of God perfectly. Now, the passive obedience of Christ, of course, is wonderful, but also the active obedience of Christ. We just say this because there's also continuous heresies and false teachings uh, that minimize the importance of the active obedience of Christ. Uh, John Murray said it well nearing his deathbed as he wrote to a good friend and he said, the act of obedience of Christ, no hope without it. But every hope with it. And now the days of our lives are so often so busy, filled with legitimate things and perhaps sadly illegitimate things. We become distracted. Our minds go this way and that way. Our thoughts go this way and that way. But at the end of the day and at the end of the life, doesn't it all come down to this question, how will I meet God? How will I meet the just and merciful God? Well, the answer is given in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified, notice that word again, having been declared righteous by faith. Now, further articles will give us the opportunity to clarify this is not on the basis of our faith. But rather, through the exercise of our faith, we receive the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive this wonderful double imputation. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God, peace with this righteous God, peace with this just God, peace with this merciful God, and peace with this gracious God. You can think also, for example, of Revelation 14 verse 13, and of course, none of us knows for certain uh, what it will be like on our deathbed. We do know this, that unless the Lord comes before then we will have a deathbed, and this in no way is pretended to try to scare you, especially young people, but it is a note of perhaps solemnity in the sense that we ought to number our days and apply our hearts into wisdom. All of us, unless again the Lord returns first, we'll have a deathbed. And on your deathbed, how will you say goodbye to time and say hello to eternity? Revelation 14, verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Who die in the Lord. Who die by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ being justified perfectly, completely, once and for all, definitively, based upon this double imputation. And so as we have reflected together this evening on the satisfaction of Christ, uh, allow me to close with two exhortations. I I don't know the, the, the condition of the hearts of everyone who's in this auditorium sanctuary building. Of course we use the judgment of charity. I don't know who all will hear these words. Whether it be here in person, whether it be through the radio airwaves, whether it be through the means of the internet. But if these words find the ears of someone who does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I have the solemn obligation to warn you that you are living your days underneath the wrath of God. Because God is a just God. And yes, He is a merciful God. But you are living your days underneath the wrath of God but thanks be to God you are still living your days. Because now the call of the gospel comes unto you and it declares to you very straightforward, repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But today is the day of salvation, so do not harden your hearts. Repentance means to acknowledge your sin, not to make excuses for your sin. Not to deny your sin, not to try to shift the blame of your sin, but just simply to agree with the Word of God and the verdict of the Word of God. Yes, I have sinned. You can think of the words, perhaps you know them, of the prodigal son. I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's what repentance is. I have sinned. Faith is, in essence, saying my hope is completely based upon the satisfaction that Jesus Christ has made. And a word to the Christian, whether you be a strong Christian, whether you be a weak Christian, whether you be one who has no doubts, or whether you be one who has some doubts. Maybe you're in the prime of your strength, uh, physically and also spiritually. Uh, perhaps you spend your days uh, in a place of medical care, confined to a bed. Fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ. The perfect Savior who is fully paid for all of my sins and accomplished all righteousness on my behalf. Because that is the only way the justice and the mercy of God meet together. What a great Savior we have. Amen. Our Father in heaven, what a wonder the gospel truly is. And we do confess that so often we're like children, distracted by this and by that. But we pray, Lord, that such text as Isaiah 53 and such theological topics as the satisfaction of Christ might serve to Refocus us upon the wonderful work of a substitutionary sacrifice. And may all of our hope, all of our trust, all of our faith be fixed upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ that our souls might be comforted and that your name might be glorified. We pray this in his name. Amen.